Into the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is the mission, and today is Saturday, January 31st, 2015. This is podcast number 389, and a couple quick announcements, and then I'll introduce my guest today. The uh, As I've been saying for the last few podcasts, we are winding down the Bad Quaker Podcast. We're in the last few uh, uh, versions of it, or the last few recordings of it. And we're going to be archiving the website, and there's going to be torrents that are getting uh, all put together, and we have a team that's taking care of that. We have 100% of the funding in place. So as strange as this sounds to say, uh, please stop sending me your money. <laughs> um, if you have an automatic deduc- deduction in your PayPal account that's going to badquaker.com, please kill that because we're going to literally be killing the bank accounts. We're going to be killing the uh, the PayPal accounts. We're going to be killing the um, the Bad Quaker, uh, uh, what's it called, Amazon account. And so if you want to send money to someplace, you know, send it over to the uh, – um, the Dangerous History podcast or send it to uh, Michael W. Dean over at the Freedom Fiends. Uh, you know, I'm going to be working with Michael at the Freedom Fiends for a while. Still, we're doing a series of shows over there on the uh, 12 steps of AA and how that relates to uh, getting rid of the state and getting rid of statism. So I would prefer that you stop funding Bad Quaker entirely and start sending your money to the Freedom Fiends or some some other good source like that. And uh, because we're going to be killing all this anyway, and we have the funding in place. So as strange as that may seem to hear somebody say that on a podcast, um, please stop sending me your money uh, now. Uh, and we are uh, if you uh, if you want to get involved in the torrent team and if you want to get involved in that, it's not too late. Drop me an email, badquaker at badquaker.com, and I'll hook you in with the guys that are doing that. And um, and we do have. At least two more podcasts. I want to do either one or two with my daughter Kai and sort of do a bookend. And uh, I'd kind of like to do one more with Bill Bupert. And there may be one or two others that we want to get in here before the end of all this. But that brings me to my guest today, uh, Nima Vadati. Nima, thanks a ton for coming on the show with me. No problem, Ben. Totally honored. It is sad for me to see uh, Bad Quaker wind down, but uh, I left because I had other things to do. I, I left the Freedom Fiends, I guess I should say. Um, so I totally understand how it is when uh, you've got to actually put your own life first, I think. Um, I mean, we're individualists, right? So it's it's a lot of fun to have these shows and to, and to teach, and I think it's honorable and important, but uh, sometimes you got to do you. Yeah. And, you know, I started the Bad Quaker podcast um, for one reason and one reason only, and that was because I had something to say. I didn't do it for fame. I didn't certainly didn't do it for fortune. I didn't do it so that I could get attention. 
if I could have done it anonymously and just, you know, gone with the name Bad Quaker and not put my name with it, I would have. But uh, a person who is really a marketing genius, um, I can't say a lot of good things about the guy other than to say he's a marketing genius. That's um, that's about the only, you know, the old phrase is if you can't say something good about somebody, don't say anything at all. So I'm <laughs> referring to Jack Spearco, he gave me a really good piece of advice, and that is that when you use your real name, um, it takes it it puts a level of legitimacy to what you're doing that you can't get from uh, from being anonymous. And right. it really made sense to me because Jack really is a marketing genius, and I will hand that to him. Uh, when it comes to understanding how a, a brand name works and how to get a message out, and do it in a way that you can get the maximum audience. Uh, Jack Spearco is the guy. He knows how to market things. Now, I don't agree with him on almost anything else, um, but I will give him that much. Uh, I don't particularly appreciate his lack of honesty or his lack of candor. I don't particularly like his bravado and his uh, threatening people on the Internet like he tends to do. I don't like the fact that he allowed himself to get conned by some obvious con man like... Uh, Oh, what that, what's that dude's name? Something Gray. I can't remember. Oh, Rob Gray. And people lost, you know, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars over Jack's stupidity. I don't appreciate that. But when, when somebody, uh, is right on something, I have no problem saying that they're right on it. And Jack gave me that really good piece of advice. So I went into this thing as with Bad Quaker podcast, not to make money, not to make fortune and fame and not to get my name out there and, you know, do any kind of ego fluff. If I could have done it anonymously, I would have. Um, the fact that I put my name with it and I stepped out there, I did that specifically to lend legitimacy to this podcast. I got my message across and, uh, and I'm done. I don't need to, you know, I'm going to help Michael a little bit longer with the Freedom Fiends just, uh, just to get across what Michael and I have, uh, uh discussed as to the points. Again, the things that are, I really need to say. And we're going to get that across on Freedom Fiends, and then I'm going to step away from that because I have no desire for, you know, uh, to, to, uh, live, uh, some kind of a life where people recognize me and come up and want to take their picture with me. All that stuff kind of annoys me. And as, you know, as much as I like going to Pork Fest and events like that, um, I really prefer just being by myself with my wife, with the dog, walking and, you know, Walking around in nature, looking at wild alligators and birds and junk like that. That's what I enjoy doing. I do not enjoy being in the public eye or having people approach me and want their picture taken with me or want my autograph. All that stuff makes me feel really weird, and I don't like it. It kind of reminds me of that old saying that uh, nobody's fit to govern, especially those who seek to. (laughs) And it's almost the same with with media personalities. I mean – People aren't really fit to tell other people what to do. And so I think there's a difference in telling people what to do and telling people, you know, what their opinion is or trying to think and really get at ideas. Um, but the people who seek to actually just be the one that somebody listens to, they seek to have their voice in as many people as possible's ear for their own ego fluffing, I guess, as you put it. Um, maybe they're the ones who are most unfit to be in everybody's ear. Man, that is the truth. And I got to hand it to you, Nima. You know, uh, you were with the Freedom Fiends over there for a long time. And then right on the cusp of them taking off, getting on the radio and, and, you know, 
really maybe taking off and making some money at some point in time. We hope that Michael will make money off that thing eventually. But, <laughs> you know, right at that moment, you said, hey, I appreciate what you're doing and everything, but I got, I have a family. i got to do what I've got to do to take care of my family. And that was more important to you than being, you know, this famous person that that people can uh, recognize your name and stuff. And I, I appreciate that from you. That was, well, that was life, really Life is all up. about tension between competing desires, I think, in your own soul. <laughs> and so, of course, I've always had that desire to, 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 to have people hear what I have to say. I think everybody does. It's, uh, well, a lot of people do. It's almost nature for some people, especially people who sort of grew up uh, with people listening to them, you know, I was like class president and I loved attention and, uh, I was a school actor and all this kind of stuff. And I did, I did plays in college and, uh, concerts. And so it was kind of something I, I really had a passion about, but there was a, a quote I read and I think it was Jeff Tucker. I'm just going to paraphrase, but it was something to the effect of, uh, the best duty to liberty or the best thing you can do for liberty is live your life well. Yeah. And to me, what what are the things that are there at the end? What are the things that you want there throughout your life? And when I think of that, uh, I think of family and relationships and love and telling stories. Uh, I don't necessarily think of, um, I don't know, having my name plastered everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> I th- I think of of making sure I did the right thing for the people who depend on me. And now that when you when you have a kid people literally depend on you like if you don't work they don't eat it's not just if i don't work i don't eat it's if i don't work they don't eat uh and so i i would have loved to have stayed with the fiends and and had that be uh what fed my family but in the end if it didn't uh feeding my family came first you know and and in case somebody out there is listening and they don't know the nima vadati story um, Nima was, Nima, uh, you know, went to college and was educated, uh, came out with his, all of his proper schooling so that he could go into mass media, um, in television. And he did that. He, uh, Nima went in and had a good job in television as a TV, as a local TV reporter, um, you know, gained notoriety, uh, improved his position in the job and was, and some might even say, you know, on the, on the fast track to moving into, uh, major broadcast news with some network. And, um, and again, there came a point in Nima's life where he said, you know what? Uh, this, that's not what's important to me. Being the famous guy on the evening news is not what's important to me. And he really made a serious sacrifice and took his life in a completely different direction so that he could have the freedom to do what he wanted to do and say what he wanted to say because he knew he couldn't have that kind of freedom uh, if he was shackled to some major network just yeah. you know, repeating the party line. And I appreciate that from you too, Nima. I mean, that was, that really... That's a man standing up doing the right thing. Well, I feel like so much of my 20s has been forgetting what I was told and taught uh, in the previous, uh, I guess, two decades before that. I mean, I grew up thinking that um, that the story you see on TV is reality. I mean, that's why I went into TV. At the same time, I, I wanted to tell people the truth, and I, I thought that that's how you do it. <laughs> you get on TV, and then you can t- you can tell people the truth. Uh, you know, I, I learned, unfortunately, way slower than I guess I should have uh, that that TV is to tell the narrative. 
the narrative is very distinct from reality uh, and the narrative told on TV and in most of the media that you see out there uh, that's prevalent and respected, I guess, uh, is kind of the narrative that Tom Woods calls the, the three by five card of acceptable opinion. Um, it's only what the powers that be would want people to think or hear uh, for the benefit of the powers that be, not for any kind of imaginary public good uh, or well-being of the common man or, or anything like that. That's all That's all pillow talk. Yeah, you know, um, this is going in a good direction for our topic for today, too. Uh, I wanted to have a show that could be used as sort of an introductory into this way of thinking that we have this what i you know i've i've started out i was very comfortable calling uh saying libertarian or saying the liberty movement and probably three four years ago i realized that that was not all that accurate and kind of creepy and more and more libertarian the, the name the word libertarian has gotten tainted by more and more weirdos and and liars and thieves and politicians and other scum of the earth, and I, I became less and less comfortable using, uh, you know, the phrase liberty movement or libertarian or even associating myself with some of these people who just uh, who I would not tolerate in my presence for even a moment. If that means I have to run away from them to get away from them, or if that means I have to shove them away to get them away. <laughs> Did I, you actually run away from uh, a specific person like that at one instance? I remember hearing that story. Um, quite possibly. I'm quite not, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can, if you... <laughs> Uh, I, the the story doesn't come to mind, but if you okay. hint at I don't a wanna, name, I don't want to name names. So I'll, oh. <laughs> say, I'll pretend it happened. That's that's my narrative. I'm sticking I, to it. I had one uh, at Porkfest. I had one uh, wannabe libertarian, um, celebritarian, uh, run away from me when I challenged him to a. Uh, oh, that's what I was thinking of. Okay, that's the story I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, of. sorry. He, I shouldn't say run away. He walked very quickly, uh, waddling the best he could, in, con- oh. considering his uh, rotundness. <laughs> Uh-huh. But um, <laughs> case in point, yeah, even you and I aren't. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, and and sort of being away from that, not in the midst of being the pod beef chef like I used to be. Um, it's I don't know if the word is is sad, but I, I I'm just kind of tired of it. And it reminds me of a quote I used to say on the fiends. Often I attributed it to Eleanor Roosevelt. I don't know if that's actually accurate, but I looked it up again on the internet today and Brainy quotes that it was, but, and I'll paraphrase again because I don't have notes in front of me. Uh, it's that, uh, you know, great minds discuss ideas, mediocre minds discuss events, small minds discuss people. And, and I worry that there's, maybe it's just that the, uh, and I hate calling it movement too, but the quote movement has gotten so big, it's gotten big enough now to where it's also full of small minds. You know, it used to be, I don't know if it used to be full, but when you used to think of it, I used to think of, of great minds like, uh, Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises and Lou Rockwell. And there still are great minds, I think, but, um, and I think Stephanie Kinsella put it this way is, uh, it seems like too many people are worried now about what amounts to the Kim Kardashians yeah. of liberty. Yeah. Yeah, or um, uh, what is uh, Michael Dean refers to the Snooky, 
the libertarian snookies. Libertarian <laughs> snookies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, 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 we've, we have drama now commiserate with, uh, yeah, with like celebrity news gossip. And I guess so the word celebritarians is, is pretty fitting because we might as well be, I might as well be watching E sometimes when I see my Facebook and Twitter feeds. Yeah, uh, I think a real flaw in this is, and Michael has pointed this out as well, so I'm not, this is not new on my part, but one of the real flaws is when a person puts it into their mind that they're going to make a, a living doing this, doing, you know, whatever libertarian or liberty movement or whatever. And in doing that, you have to make certain compromises, uh, that can, that do very often, maybe not 100% of the time, but very often they put a person into a situation where, uh, you know, being a celebrity becomes more important than the actual message. Right. And, and that kills so much of the legitimacy of what we're doing that, uh, again, it poisons even the word liberty or it poisons the word libertarian and even the word liberty to a certain extent. I mean, that's, you know, there are insurance companies and there are tax companies that, <laughs> that do your taxes that are called right. liberty and there's pawn yeah. shops called liberty and there's, you know, it's just like, it is a, become a completely useless word and it's almost like anarchist is a, is a more acceptable term now. Yeah. Then, yeah. then liberty, because you say liberty, and they're going to think, oh, you're Tea Party, or oh, right. you're, you know, Bill Maher, or or whatever. And well, it, it, think about the word liberal. I mean, the the way we use the word liberal now has nothing to do with the classical liberals of yeah, old. Yeah. I mean, the way people used to use that word, meaning uh, free, or you know, especially free from uh, centralized coercion. And now, liberal pretty much means an advocate of centralized coercion. The pollution of these words makes it make it seem like, you know, if, if you get stuck with these labels like liberal or libertarian or whatever or liberty, it's almost like you want to f get a stick and wipe it off your shoe because it stinks so bad, you know? <laughs> That's right. That's right. We need some Lysol. Have bad Quaker cook us up a, a nice cleaning solution <laughs> for our shoes because we've stepped in too many liberty uh, dog minds. Yeah. <laughs> um. So let's uh, let's talk about the uh, the essentials here. So the one one thing that we've already started to talk about a little bit is to um, to understand what this. You know, I refer to sometimes I say uh, this thing of ours because that's sort of a mafia reference to um, if you're within the group and and there's the you know touch your nose wink wink nod nod. Uh, you're one of us. You're a, a good fellow. That kind of thing. One of those uh -huh. phrases was. Um, this thing of ours, and it's literally what La Costa Nostra means. It, it means this thing of ours. Ah, right. So I have kind of referred to uh, this thing of ours in that way at times because, um, because in a sense, it's kind of an inside joke. Of course, the mafia is based on violence and threatening and and extortion and and these horrible things. Well, we are providing a, a theory based on the exact opposite of that. Um. And government is exactly like the mafia, except they're like the most successful mafia. The mafia that we recognize in the United States, uh, having its source in the island of Sicily, was actually the government there at one time, and it's just fallen out of power over the centuries. And so the, the family organizations that kept these, this crime uh, syndicate going and eventually moved it to the U.S. were literally the remnants of 
of the former governor, uh, govern, uh, government of Sicily from back a few hundred years. So in a sense, the mafia is uh, a form of government, and it is just a less successful form of government than the ones that are in power completely. And so right. what we're trying to offer is is an, an alternative to that, and these labels that we've been talking about get in our way. But um, an, a person hearing about this stuff for the first time or a person trying to figure out you know, what the options are, uh, I think the biggest, or the first, not the biggest, but the first thing that you have to do is uh, get past all these labels and try to get to something that's not based on the personality of some famous, you know, uh, celebritarian or some, you know, uh, some famous politician or whatever. Get past all these personality issues and get past the terminology that's going to throw you off and find out what the source of all this is and you know that it's not really some weird culty thing that that uh you know that you need to be aware of that you can that you can have this individually and that it d- doesn't depend on being part of a cult right right and i think that what makes government the most successful mafias in their respective monopolies of violence is how thoroughly they've captured hearts and minds. To me, that's the distinction is people tend to not think the mafia is an important institution. They don't think the mafia is good. They don't think the mafia is legitimate. Where the difference is, is for some reason, well, I, I, there's several reasons, but uh, because of the way people are taught and society has taught them, because of things like public schools and mass media being influenced um, by politics, People tend to think that those who have power over them uh, are for some reason good and have their interests at heart and are somehow immune to the normal human seeking of self-interest, um, which to me is one of the biggest things you can use as a way to let people know that um, that the state is not an answer to the problems they bring up with anarchy. Because people will say things like, well, people are inherently evil or you can't trust people. They're too corrupt. Uh, they only look out for themselves. They're too selfish. Okay. Well, we'll grant you that. If that's the case now, you would not want to give people like that, uh, a license to kill. And you can see the, the perfect microcosm in the police state right now. And I think that things like that, things that are in the public eye that even the average person who maybe has never even heard of Mises or Rothbard or Hayek or, or would never care to hear about those people, those people can look and see, huh, cops seem to be killing more and more dogs. Cops seem to be killing more and more people. Also, uh, there doesn't ever seem to be any kind of accountability or trials. I've never seen a cop go to jail over something like that. And maybe they can make the connection in their heads that well, that's why those things are directly causal. Actually, if you uh, if you commit atrocities and society praises you for those atrocities uh, and even rewards you financially for them, um, there's no reason for you to not do that because you're going to respond to the positive incentive. Yeah, I think that's an aspect of economics that. You know, when people, if you use the word economics, this is another one of these words that's, that throws people for a loop. If you use the word uh, economics, people immediately think of some kind of college course that they didn't really understand or that they don't want to take. Right. 
But that's not really what that is. You know, economics can be just, you know, um, you watch a dog, and if you if the dog behaves in a certain way, you reward that dog, and eventually the dog will will behave more in that way because he will be responding to that stimulus and he will want that reward. And so right. the more you uh, the more you reward him for a certain behavior, the more likely he is to do that behavior. Right. And eventually he'll do that as often as possible because he wants that reward. Well, that's economics. Yeah. That's that's just basic economics. And right. so if if you have a class of people and you can call them police or you can call them the mafia or whatever and they've got complete or the government or what you know however whatever subgroup that you want to think about but um you have created a financial incentive for them to behave in a certain way then they're they're going to respond to that stimulus and they're going to respond in a certain way and then if you take away any punishment of their negative deeds and you only provide them for more incentives to behave badly then they're going to behave more badly and more badly and the further through time that this goes the worse they're going to get and this goes beyond generational so you know one generation that behaves in a certain way three or four or five generations down the road are going to be that much worse. So right. it's the same whether you're talking about police or if you're talking about, you know, a, a thing that I talked about recently was the fact that the uh, uh, the United States government had an Indian problem in the 1800s. And so the way that they solved the Indian problem, and this is the terminology they use, which, you know, Nazis actually uh, mimicked um, guys like uh, Sherman and and uh, Grant Jackson. and yeah, uh, when 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 people Americans who are on our money. <laughs> say that again. People who are lionized on our money these days. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the Nazis actually used the same terminology as American presidents and and other thugs because it was accurate and and you know so the american government had a had an indian problem and so the way they solved the indian problem was to essentially murder the warrior class of the indians round up the rest of them and um keep them uh dependent upon government handouts to keep them alive and after a couple generations of this and uh you know they outlawed alcohol to indians in the 1800s so if you outlaw alcohol to a whole population of people that you've isolated into one area and you're giving them government subsidies for all their food and their housing and everything, then that's going to create a greater incentive for them to want alcohol because we all know how prohibitions work, right? Right. If, if you outlaw air, the first thing everybody's going to do is start having a black market of air. I mean, it's just right. you can't outlaw something like that and expect it to go away. So you get the opposite of what you want. And that's exactly what they did. They outlawed alcohol to Indians. So now they've got more and more Indians with greater and greater addiction problems with alcohol, and you've got them dependent. So now you've, at the first generation, you've killed off all of the, the warrior class. Now, after a couple generations, you've got them stupefied with alcohol, and you have neutralized the entire uh, Native American uh, people, and they're no longer a threat to the United States government. And now generations go by and they respond to this stimulus. They respond to being uh, fed. They respond to being uh, self-drugged with alcohol and they respond to having free housing. 
and they become less and less of a of a threat to the government and more and more of a of a societal threat to themselves and this is a negative uh, uh process of doing this to the american indians the government did that to keep them in line well uh and as i've pointed out before the government has kind of done that um, since the uh, 1860s with black people in America, doing essentially the same thing, isolating them, um, getting them dependent, outlawing certain substances, uh, and, and, and creating a situation where dependence on the government and dependence on substances becomes rampant, and then pretty soon the government controls this whole group of people. And that's right. a horrible situation. But the flip side of that same formula is taking generations of cops and teaching them generationally that you can get away with horrible things. We're going to reward you for it, and we're never going to punish you for your bad deeds. And so, you know, cops that may have been misbehaving, if you read about, like, in the in the mid-1800s in gangs of, of New York, you read about how corrupt the cops were then, and you just multiply that by 150 years, and you've got monsters in military garb with military weapons pretty much taking over the streets in the United States, which is right. terrifying. Completely horrifying. And so you see all these things and you see these bad uh, incentives that the state has, that the government has, and you look at police brutality. You look at uh, – yeah, genocide. We'll call it what it is. Genocide of the native population. Uh, and these kinds of roundups did not end there. I mean, as recently as, uh, 60, 70 years ago in World War II, uh, they rounded up, uh, hundreds of thousands of people of Japanese descent, Americans who had lived in California, uh, not even recent immigrants, some who had grown up speaking English and going to school in America and shipped them to random sites throughout the American West in concentration camps, uh, and just Antonin Scalia says you're fooling yourself if you think it'll never happen again. Yeah. And you look you look at all this and so as a non-libertarian, uh, you might say something like, well, we need to make sure these things don't happen. We need to have safeguards. Uh, we need to put this into law. Uh, we need to have our best lawyers on this. And that sounds okay, and, and that sounds like what you're, you're told should happen if you go to a government civics class is you work within these uh, checks and balances and these legal parameters and these smart, smart people who uh, racked up hundreds of thousands of dollars in school loans uh, <laughs> and so are somehow qualified to then make the state respond to uh, to incentives that are just words on a piece of paper. And you realize that when has that ever worked? When has limiting the government ever worked? Uh, and if you make the argument that the, the American experiment is some great proof that uh, checks and balances do work, um, just look at what we have today. Look at indefinite detention. Look at drones. Look at uh, the executive, the unitary executive uh, executing Americans without any kind of due process or even charges against their name. Uh, and, and you surely can see that there's some kind of disconnect. That thought that that you can work within the American legal code to somehow restrain uh, these kinds of atrocities. Um, and you realize that, well, why hasn't it happened yet? And so that kind of brings you to thinking about, well, why? What What's different? And I think the answer that you can bring with, uh, if, if we're done with isms, the answer that you can bring with simple economics is to say that, well, the state increases both its power and its wealth um, 
with fear. The more people are scared, the more willing they are to give up power, to allow the government to do things. And the government will do just like a person does. A person will get away with what he can get away with. And so if you take the flip side of that, if you, if you said, well, if we had institutions that uh, that could just be done away with if they don't have any revenue for a few months, then they would just cease to be able to operate. Um, that's the kind of institution that will constantly work to make people happy, um, whereas the state is the kind of institution that uh, if people don't like it, tough. Tough. If people don't like it, they still have to pay it. They can't ever cut off the revenue stream. And if they do cut off their own revenue stream and close their wallets to the state, uh, you know, they will end up, uh, at worst in a body bag. Yeah. You know, uh, let me, I don't know if I've explained this on the air before or actually on the podcast before. I'm used to being on the radio with Michael and my terminology shifts, but, um, I had a, a situation, I guess it's a couple of years ago. I was at a um a wedding shower uh my wife uh was invited to this wedding shower of a of a relative and so that means all the husbands were stuck outside waiting while the ladies had their wedding shower inside and it was a nice setting it's on a lake in Ohio and it's a beautiful little lake with a you know a a, a very um comfortable income of the landowners around the lake so there were some really nice lake houses, and out on the lake itself, um, there's a lot of rules on this lake because it's all private. So you can't have like you know there's speed limits on this lake and and all this kind. Of, they don't want a lot of waves and they don't want people skiing or going really fast and you know on on jet skis or whatever. So there's all these rules on this private lake, and. Um, so I'm back there with the other men while our wives are in the house. And uh, one of the guys that's there points out the stark difference between the lake that we were at and another lake called C it's Caesars Creek, uh, which is a state-controlled lake, and all the property around it is state-controlled. Uh, state and he says, uh, you know, this lake, first off, the lake is way cleaner than the lake at Caesars Creek. It is, uh, has, is, for its size, it's better stocked with fish. Um, you don't, even though there are rules at Caesars Creek Lake about, uh, you know, where you can go fast, where you can ski, where you can, mostly it's not enforceable because the shape of the lake, you can pretty much find a place and do whatever you want to do and they can't catch you. So, um, so people break these rules all the time. There's litter. There's not good camping there. There are no houses around the lake because it's all state-owned, and um, and it's just not that nice of a lake compared to this wonderful setting of this private lake. And he was commenting about it, and he said, I wonder why they don't just you know, uh, spend some money there and make it nicer and whatever. And I said, you really have to ask this? You really don't understand <laughs> the difference in why this beautiful lake with these beautiful houses is like it is, and the state-owned lake is a filth hole that literally stinks. You don't understand why. Because there is no incentive for the state to improve that lake. There, There's political incentive. In other words, if you get a group of people and they all you know, go down there to the state capitol and they all say, we want this lake improved, then the state is, if the state uh, players respond to that, 
you know, the politicians and the bureaucrats and all those thieves, if they respond to that, the way they're going to respond is they're going to go steal tax money from people in Cleveland and Columbus and, and you know, all the other towns that are far, cities that are far away from that lake. They're going to go rob from them and then come back and spend money on that lake. And the money they spend on the lake is not going to be incentivized in a way that's going to be exactly what anybody wants. It's all going to be politically spent money. So you're never going to really get what you wanted to get out of it. And in the end, what you've actually done, you're never going to produce as good of a product as the private lake produced. You're going to do it by robbing people. And in the end, you're not going to have as nice of a thing. And the the difference being that the people who own the property around that lake have a direct financial incentive. This is their property. They own it. They want it to be nice. And if there's one of their neighbors that's zinging up and down on that, you know, they have like a homeowners association. If there's somebody who's zinging up and down on the lake, making a bunch of waves and and destroying the, uh, you know, their their uh, um, shoreline. Peace quiet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then uh, they're going to kick them off the property. They literally, as having a homeowners association, they have the ability to either find the person or kick them off the property. And you don't have that kind of incentive at the uh, at the state op- operated lake and and right. you know it would be different and i'm not big on uh, corporations as being the answers to anything but if disney owned the lake then th- it would a be a clean lake b there would be all kinds of activity there you know everything from water slides to you know pirate boats that you could ride on or or you know i mean it would it, the, the imagination is the only limitation as to what disney can do when they own a lake right and i, I bring this up to people in debates with uh i've got a few people who actually follow me on facebook uh are fans of the things i say and um some are are law enforcement and some are uh are pretty minarchist about it and, and say you know well you know, I did what I had to do, but uh, I don't. I don't agree with the way police are going now. And some are more gung ho and, and post things that you would see on any kind of boilerplate Fox News uh, fans uh, Facebook page. Um, and I, I mentioned to them, well, uh, think about where you feel safer. <laughs> do you feel safer uh, in some downtown city street, maybe in a bad part of? The neighborhood, let's say a public housing project. There you go. Completely government controlled. Do you feel safer at night in the dark on the street of a public housing project or do you feel safer in Disneyland at night on a, a Disneyland street? Uh, and think about who is providing the security for the public housing project and think about who's providing security for Disneyland. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. public versus private. Uh, a government modified environment doesn't feel safe to us, uh, to any person. As some kind of clean private place. Think about uh, maybe the parking lot at a mall. Think about how the road systems in a shopping complex work. Those are roads. They're safe. You can't really get a ticket. There's not cops patrolling it. Uh, they're not going to throw you in handcuffs and, and point the chrome to your dome. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's easily seen in real world examples, the kinds of corruption and uh, lack of any kind of uh, benefit, real benefit to the average person that state environments and state actors provide. Um, I have some family who recently took a road trip. We live in Texas. They took a road trip from Austin to Belize. So what's in between? Uh, Mexico. <laughs> all of Mexico. <laughs> and so they drove through all of Mexico to get to Belize. 
And what they told me uh, upon return uh, is the people in Mexico are great except for anyone with state power. And then they're the worst people you meet. They have no concern for you whatsoever. They literally uh, – and, and the people know this. They literally take the money from you. Uh, they, they literally grabbed pesos out of uh, out of my friend's hand uh, and, and said bye. Uh, they will lie. Uh, they will cheat. They use the threat of courts. So they'll say, uh, oh, ticket, got to go to court. Unless, of course, you give me all of your pesos right now, and then they'll send you on their way. Uh, this is well known. Um, and then, uh, upon arrival in Belize, they realize that uh, Belize is almost as close as you can get to an anarchy, and everybody is completely nice. And it's not anarchy in uh, a de jure sense, just in a de facto sense. Uh, it's not like they have anarcho-capitalism paradise written in their constitution. Um, no, they're just a normal state who doesn't – for some reason, uh, have a prevalent or large police force to enforce all their edicts. So in effect, uh, you don't have all those state actors there. And so you can see uh, in real world examples in other countries too that uh, the state is really nothing but thugs. And we – I think it's easier for Americans to see it when they see it in another country because they didn't grow up for 18 years thinking about how awesome the police in Mexico were or how great the checks and balances in Mexico were. So it's obvious. Um, and so I think those kinds of um, those kinds of real world examples that you can see with your own eye uh, can sometimes help you to break the indoctrination that is so thick in all of our skulls. Let's touch on this indoctrination too, because you know we talked about the difference between the mafia and the government. And uh, would a, a person? The thought comes to mind: Would a person believe the mafia was bad? If the mafia controlled literally all of the mainstream media and had a 12 to what, um, 16, 12 to 16 year monopoly on education, right? 12 years of that, almost 13 if you count kindergarten, is forced, um, to be, you know, under a certain curricula that will even homeschooling to a large extent. I'm sorry to say that, but. Uh, most homeschooling is required to follow a certain curricula, and even that curricula, to a large extent, has this undertone of uh, of brainwashing in it that tells you that the state is good, that government is is required, and that we should, you know, we should uh, uh, hold high these um, these dead guys that we were talking about, this you know Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and these other guys who were who were literally just the most successful mafia thugs of their day. That's all they right. were. There's, right. there's, you know, why, without going into 16 hours of me explaining all of Washington's letters and, and some of the horrible things that he did, the more you look at this guy, the more of a monster he really was, you know, asking his men to go and, um, and burn the crops of Indian villages in upstate New York so that, and do this right before the onset of winter and make sure that you get all of their stored grains and and everything that they had put up for the winter, specifically so that they would starve them out over the course of the uh, New York winter. And that's the kind of a guy that is, uh, you know, that is put up as being this great father of the nation. But, you know, how much of that uh, would we accept? How much of today's government oppression 
would we accept if we didn't have all that brainwashing ahead of time? Right. So we look at somebody like Mexico and we're like, well, it's a good thing we don't have corrupt cops like they have in Mexico. <laughs> no, it's just the opposite. You have sure. who is invading all these countries around the world, murdering people with drones, who is running, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent taxes, according to who you are and so forth. You're not getting that in Mexico. You're getting that in the United States because America, in the United States, they have spent years and years convincing you that our government is good. Nobody buys that crap in Mexico. They all know that everybody in government is corrupt. Right. You're not going to convince them that government's there for their own benefit. They all understand that government is just the crime gang that's in control right now. Right. Yeah, and to me, that... Maybe history will see the United States as that being the pinnacle achievement of the state here is is I think they're the most successful regime at convincing the most amount of people that they are a force for good when the facts are so obvious to the contrary uh, to where the death toll is is in the multiple millions now around the world if you count uh, the past – just the past hundred years. Um, and yet nobody really sees it. Nobody even really notices. You'll see comments on Facebook where people are talking about Barack Obama and somebody will mention that he's a child murderer. And people won't even know that there's a drone war. They'll yeah. say, what? When did that happen? It's like – well, his whole his whole tenure in the presidency, it, it never ceased it, it from literally the month he took office before he received his Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, it, it really is amazing how, you know, if you think about it, uh, think about how we consider the 1930s Nazi Germany and how we consider the people of Germany. And we think, how in the world did they sit back and let such a monster and such a monstrous regime do the kind of hideous things that they did and they they never for a moment the average american never for a moment considers that this is exactly the state of denial that people in america are in with their own government right and then think about where we received our model of public education yeah from the, the prussians the precursor uh so i i think that they maybe that is the innovation that has led to the power of uh, of these 20th century and now 21st century empires. I mean, obviously, the the, the United States has been able to uh, to make it less obvious even to the people around the world uh, that we we have these imperial ambitions. But I think the veneer is getting uh, thinner and thinner uh, as we speak. You know, a lot of people look back on something like Rome and they say. Well, Rome, the levels of corruption were obvious in Rome, looking back at it, you know, 2,000 years after the fact. Uh, and they had these uh, horrible displays where, you know, they had the, the public uh, arenas where these people would come in and watch people be slaughtered for entertainment. And, you know, and, and Americans nowadays look back on that and kind of wag their head and like, oh, we're so much better than that. We're, we're so much more civilized now than those monsters were back then. And yet, you know, maybe two, three, four hundred years from now, when people look back at the American sniper. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What are they going to think when they see the American people, um, you know, idolizing some hideous, uh, really a sick person like like that? And thinking that that's good, calling the most horrible, evil thing that could possibly be, calling that good. 
What are they going to think about Americans? And how is that going to be different from the way Americans think about Nazi Germany in the 1930s or the way Americans think of, you know, Rome 2,000 years ago? And there's a real self-centered, um, uh, you know, it's hard to say. I'm going through the, the 12 steps on the radio with Michael talking about the 12 steps of, of alcoholism uh, or of Alcoholics Anonymous and comparing that to statism. And right. it's hard for me not to bring that stuff back up in every single example now because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the addiction uh, to the state and the refusal to be honest with yourself, the refusal to admit the the horrible crimes that are taking place in your name and that your taxes are paying for and that every time you vote, you're you're becoming a part of the same process. These are the denial things that the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous have to face first before they can even get a person to, to even seriously think about stopping drinking. Right. I, you know, it, it's really, uh, it's, it's hard for me not to even fall back into just start, okay, that's it. I'm going to start reading the, the 12 <laughs> steps out loud now and you American people get with it and stop your addiction to, to government. Well, and, and I've been pondering on, on why a lot lately. And I think where I'm at now is realizing that so many people put tribe above truth always as a rule. Uh, tribe above truth to where uh, they don't even f- look for truth at all. Uh, they just look for tribe. And whatever tribe says is truth to them. Um, I feel somehow lucky in the sense that I don't really ever feel like I belonged to a specific tribe. I mean my parents were of completely different origins. I mean their they're backgrounds thousands of miles away from each other. Um, you know, and I grew up in different parts of town, uh, moving around and, and my dad was really well off and, and my mom, not so much at times, uh, living in expensive neighborhoods and really poor neighborhoods as I grew up. So I never really latched on and said, well, this is who I am. I'm, I'm one of these, these East side Baytown kids who goes and causes trouble or I'm one of these preppy kids who wears colored shorts and white polos. I, I was never part of anything. So I, I, I think I was always able to see that, that that kind of tribalism is silly because in the end, all the tribes are the same. They all want the same things. Every person tends to want most of the same things. The, where the truth that is, is realizing that, um, we're all equal in the moral calculus that we can apply to ourselves and to each other. And that to me is another important tenet when you're talking about, I guess, Anarchy 101 or Liberty 101 or whatever we decide to end up calling this is that, um, me, Nima, uh, I, I have the same moral calculus in the actions, not necessarily myself as a person, but in the actions that I do should be judged the same if I did them as if say a white Republican or a black Republican or a Mexican Democrat or a president of the United States or a premier of Russia or an emperor of uh, North Korea or a king of Saudi Arabia. Uh, none of those titles confer any kind of special moral status. None of those different tribes uh, should abide by any kind of special moral status. And I think this is a really important point, too, in today's world where we have an ongoing active racial supremacy genocide being committed in Israel and Palestine to where one faction 
literally has as a central tenet of its ideology that they are a chosen people of God and do have a different moral calculus on them than everybody else in the world, especially their neighbors who they are, uh, for, for political reasons, sharing some land with right now. Um, I think if you can see that and break that down, uh, everything else, it's kind of a, a Rosetta Stone into realizing uh, how everything else in the world is working. That's a good comparison. And, you know, so many people in the United States have this weird idea that if the U.S. does it, it's okay. Or if Israel does it, it's okay. Um, and they they refuse to consider the option that it's not who does it. It's the fact that that right. cannot morally be done. Uh, and they refuse to, to hold their, like you're saying, their tribe. They refuse to hold their tribe to the same... Uh, moral level that they themselves, hold, uh, you know, uh, we we're, we're standing in a neighborhood, and you see your neighbor across the street just uh, decide, hey, you know what? I think I'm gonna build a fence right through the middle of my, of of the next neighbor over of his yard and just take his yard, and we would think, oh, that's horrible, and we wouldn't support that, and yet that's what we watch happen on a regular basis. And because it's Israel, we say, oh, it's okay. Or because the U.S. does it. Because the U.S. goes into some foreign land and just arbitrarily decides that there's a new border here. Well, that's okay, you know? Right, right. And some are even as unsophisticated enough, uh, some of the justifiers of this, to say there is no moral equivalency. <laughs> Which basically means that, uh, yeah, we're, we're, it's okay when we do it. <laughs> it's not okay yeah. when you do it. It's the double standard is there and it's right. Uh, and I don't, really know how anybody can justify that in their head i don't i don't really know how i mean i i see them try to justify it but it doesn't justify to me uh in the end i see a a, a syntax error or or a, an equation not found or there's there's multiple errors that and red flags that should immediately alert um and i i think that that leads to another problem with uh with modern uh, communications is that logic and argumentation uh, and, you know, the rules of rhetoric don't ever seem to factor in to, to what people write and what people say when they just, when they're justifying power. At yeah. Least. Yeah, that's true. Well, and of course, back to the education problem. Since kids are not taught rhetoric in school, they're not taught how to think. They're not taught rhetoric so they don't know how to analyze something and find out if they're just being conned or if they're actually believing, you know, real things. Um, all they are told is a series of uh, uh, of pieces of chunks of information that they're supposed to recite back to their teacher or they're supposed to answer in a quiz or whatever. And so they don't know how to think. They don't know how to analyze information. They don't know how to analyze an argument. And, and then, you know, going through school of, of years of that type of training, then they come out and the news media or their great leaders or whatever – um, feed them garbage and, you know, uh, garbage in, garbage out is the old phrase. And, th and that's exactly what you get. You get people who literally are adults and don't know how to think. They don't know how to analyze right. an argument. They have no idea, uh, when somebody very obviously uses such, such common things as, you know, uh, a red herring or, a a straw man or, you know, ad hominem or whatever, 
they don't see it and they have no idea that they're being conned. It, it's just really amazing. Right. And to me, it, it's an obvious feature of statism. If you think about when uh, we are learning things in a non-state environment, um, your only test is your own prowess at something. Like like take your hobby, for instance, uh, or or your craft. Uh, if you don't actually learn the, the things that are useful, uh, your work will suffer. It won't look as awesome. There, there's an obvious test in real world terms. And so the incentive is to, uh, educate yourself efficiently and with regard to it making sense to you, to it being logical, to it panning out. Um, state education is not like that at all. And I, I think a perfect example, uh, is if you look at North Korea, there's a guy named Michael Malice who I've heard interviewed on Tom Wood's show a few times. And he actually wrote a book. I think it's called Dear Leader. Uh, and he, he went to North Korea and, uh, and his day job is he's a ghostwriter for celebrities. But in this one, he actually, he's, he's on the byline, if you call it that, but he's the, the, the literal author. Um, and he tells these stories of, uh, for one instance, how North Korean education system works. And he says it's a series of books that are, are mostly just stories about what the leaders did. And it's all stuff like, well, a uh, great leader walked into a factory. A uh, person came and told him that this wasn't efficient in this process. And great leader figured it out and then it worked. Uh, and, and there's never any logic. It's just the story is there was a problem. Great leader solved it. End of story. So lesson is great leader is awesome. You should love him. Wow. Uh, and if you look at, at American history classes, that's often the structure is there was a problem, uh, capitalism. There was a villain, uh, robber barons. And democracy saved us. The state saved us. FDR was our hero. Um, Herbert Hoover was too close to the capitalist and FDR came and saved it regardless of any factual accuracy because, of course, there's none in that specific example. Uh, and, and, and so there's that aspect of there being a villain and the state is there to help you. Uh, and the other story he says is, well, this isn't his book, I don't think. This is an anecdote he told from a survivor, somebody who uh, escaped North Korea and says that in their school, uh, they would uh, every Saturday, you know, not a school day, uh, they would take turns. Certain students had to be there to where they would guard the school from the American spies. So the American <laughs> spies didn't come in and hijack their learning materials. Wow. And again, it's to make sure you're fearful of the tribe over the hill so you'll give your allegiance willingly to your tribal leader who will protect you from the tribal other on the other side of the hill. Um, and so you can see that these kinds of centralized tribal power structures uh, that today's modern manifestation is the state – uh, how this is a feature of how they work, how they must work if they are to maintain their statehood. You know, uh, let's, uh, that, uh, that's true. My mind was wandering while you were saying that because there's a, there's a phrase that I'm trying to remember that, uh, and I'm trying to think of who, uh, who it is that talks about this all the time. It might be, um, anyway, okay, uh, no use chasing down that rat hole. But there, there's a three-step process that's problem, something, solution. Um, 
that that government relies on. And it's pretty much exactly what you were uh, outlining there, and it's a false uh, it's a false scenario that government likes to sell us constantly. Um, and there's a real prominent person who talks about that all the time uh, on the Corbett Report. That's who it is. Anyway, um, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Could be right. Could be the, yeah. the Hegelian dialectic. Yeah, 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 yeah. There yeah. we go. <laughs> um, Google's my friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I can't think and talk and type at the same time, so that okay. leaves me out. Um, now, one of the things that people will always say is they'll they'll have these. Uh, you know, I used to refer to them all the time when I talk about this as um, uh, security blankets or pacifiers or. Yeah. There, if you if you've been around little kids, they like to latch on to a p- particular thing that brings them comfort, and they don't want to let go of it. It can be their teddy bear, it can be whatever, and they will associate that with falling asleep or if, associate uh-huh. it with you know um, uh, being warm or whatever. Right. And then after a while, it's hard to get them to fall asleep without that, or it's hard to get them to feel comforted without that, or whatever. Yeah. Right. And and this is an aspect of human nature um, that we have echoed out into government. And so there are things that people worry about. Like, and the old uh, the old argument is always, well, without government, who would build the roads? But that's kind of a, you know, kind of a cliche. But at the same time, people always have things like that that they're so worried about. What would keep the the evil immigrants from just coming in here and taking all of our jobs? Or what would prevent these monsters from over from over uh, on the other side of the ocean from coming over here and blowing up our buildings or what would keep these what would you know keep us safe at night what would keep the the robbers from going from house to house and just busting in your door and coming straight into your house without the government doing all these great things for me what would keep these things from happening and it's possible and you know we do this uh, to the point of uh, just of nausea we go, have gone through and i say we in a sort of a collective thing of of those of us who have uh, who have talked about this for the last 150 years you know we we talk about these things over and over who would build the roads road builders would build the roads who would ma- who would deliver the mail mail carriers would deliver the mail who would uh, keep us you know safe from the from our neighbor um, well, security would keep us either right. <laughs> your individual security or security you hired or, you know, and, and there's an answer for every single one of these things, but people always have their one favorite security blanket or their right. one favorite teddy bear or whatever. Right. This, the state is like the tiger repellent. It's like, uh, well, yeah. you want to buy this tiger repellent? Uh, why? Well, do you see any tigers? It obviously works. <laughs> That's what it is because the state doesn't solve any of these problems right uh, and with the roads people bring up well how could a private entity uh have as, enough money to build the roads well you know what the state doesn't actually change the cost of something it's not like roads are cheaper when the state builds them in fact you could make the argument that roads are a lot more expensive when the state builds them because have you ever uh, been with a construction company or any kind of firm that's seeking a government contract? They lick their chops because they know the costs aren't going to be counted tightly. Uh, the budgets aren't going to be obsessed about. The timeline isn't going to be obsessed about. Uh, they have a job and a, and a budget and they're going to pay you the full amount of that budget. So you can pretty much get away with 
with whatever you want as far as corruption goes. Um, so I think you'd have a lot cheaper roads if you let the private sector uh, build them. And if you couldn't monetize it in a profitable way, then maybe there doesn't need to be a road there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and that's a good point, too, that a lot of people don't think about. I, when we, uh, our last trip um, south for the winter, we uh, we were, uh, during the springtime, we were all the way up in New Hampshire, the Canadian border, and then we made our way down through the different states and across Ohio, and then uh, made our way through Missouri, where we, uh, uh, I officiated a wedding there during the summertime, and then on down through Arkansas and Mississippi and Louisiana and stuff. Uh, moving through in our motorhome, going from place to place like that. And in that, in those travels, we came across this road in southern Missouri. Now, if you look on a map of Missouri, you'll see that, um, there's a good sized town in southwestern Missouri called Springfield. And then if you look on the map, you have all of southern Missouri with no major cities of any kind, all the way from uh, Springfield, which is all the way on the western side, almost to Oklahoma, all the way to the eastern side of Missouri where um, St. Louis is, there's little towns. But the f- but the further you go south towards the Arkansas border, there are huge stretches without even little towns. There's it's a lot of farming country, but it's also a lot of uninhabited hill country. Uh, and I say uninhabited; it's there. Part of it is uh, park services. Part of it is military owned. And part of it is uh, just, you know, farmers that have little uh, acreage or some of it is large acreage where people run cattle on it or so forth. But there's just no towns. And so there's not a lot of traffic driving around. And as we're coming from southern Missouri into Arkansas, we hit this one large four-lane highway that just went on forever and ever and ever with no traffic. And... It's like here you are on this huge four-lane highway that cuts through hills with, you know, uh, who knows how much money it took to cut the uh, the mountains to get this four-lane highway built through uh, these uh, uh, Ozark Mountains, and there's no traffic on it. What justifies having this here? Well, what justified it was some politicians saying, we got to get a, a road built through my district. And that's what did it. All that money went right. to build a road that nobody uses. Right, right. And think about where that money could have gone, you know. And, and that's that's the other important economic point about uh, versus the state is the the opportunity cost that is foregone because of all of the state structure. Uh, if you try to say, well, the state is there to take care of poor people, and then you look up statistics about how much of the money that's budgeted for these kinds of help the poor programs actually just goes to pensions for the employees, yeah. salaries and benefits for the employees or the contractors. Um, and so people will also – speaking of contractors, people bring up the point, well, if you privatize it, look at how, how corrupt the, the private prisons are and all these contractors. Well, th- that's not real privatization. By privatization, I mean the state doesn't get the budget in the first place right. to then delegate and pay the private prisons or pay Blackwater. Um, nobody would be able to raise funds for those kinds of activities that that most people are really upset about. If you can't get most people on board with something uh, that that requires money from most people uh, in in some kind of society without a state, then tough. It doesn't get built. And so you only would see projects that had some kind of 
marketable need that that could convince enough people to either buy the product or invest in the capital to make the product. You know, what you just pointed out there is a real common fallacy with people that tend to be on the left who who understand the dangers of corporatism and they see problems with it. And so they say, you know, oh, we have to have the government to regulate this because corporations are so evil and we can't let the corporations, uh, you know, do that. Like you said, privatizing the the uh, the different things because you end up with horrible levels of corruption within these corporations. So you have the military industrial complex and you have the prison system that's more and more becoming just a really bad money suck on society. And the problem is, you know. It, it's kind of the, um, so you see a problem with government, so the solution is to have government fix the problem with a marriage <laughs> with corporations. Right. You're, you, and rather than actually allowing the market to fix the problem, so what's the problem? The problem is that there's this massive drug war where people are getting arrested for doing stuff that is, that's by moral, uh, uh, by all things moral, there's no crime. When somebody grows a plant and uses it for their own recreation that I may not like it, you may not like it. It may be, you know, uh, uh, culturally unacceptable or whatever, but no actual crime has taken place. But if you decide to make that a crime and then create a whole network of law enforcement and prisons and all these other things, um, then you've made a problem out of it. And then you, then you, the, you want to rely on government to solve that problem that government has made by this, uh, you know, a fascist marriage of government and corporations. And then you want to call that free market or you want to call that a market solution or you want to blame, you know, you want, you, no, your entire premise is backwards. It's like, you know, if, if, if I have a drinking problem uh, and I and I drink too much whiskey, then the way that I can avoid this drinking problem of drinking too much whiskey is to switch to vodka. What? <laughs> well, if you think about the – okay, let's talk about companies and corporations and big business and military industrial complex. If you think about it, the most corruption, the, the most corrupt organizations people think about are in industries that are – are heavily state sanctioned, uh, like the military, like the prison system, uh, like healthcare, like banking. Uh, if you think about where there are the most laws, the most regulations, the most focus from lawmakers and cabinet level people in the executive and lawsuits and lawyers, wherever you see all of those state functionaries and auxiliary people making money off of the state functions, that's where you see Untold amounts of corruption to yeah. where uh, the Pentagon can't even get up to part where they could be audited. They're not even at a level to where they could be audited. That's how bad their books are. And uh, that money is going to companies like Lockheed and Boeing. And you have that moral hazard of, well – if all it costs is a, is a few million dollars to butter up every congressman and then your payout is multiple billions of dollars for something like the F-35, that's like the best uh, return on investment anybody could hope for. So you'd be an idiot businessman to not go for it. Um, so it's not that, that greed is really the problem if you're addressing the left because greed is kind of 
it's there. Greed just means responding to incentives because people want things. People always want things. They always will want things. There's no way to get it, get, get around that. There's no way to prevent inequality. If, you, if you've ever seen Enemy at the Gates, uh, it's socialist paradise in there. It's the Battle of Stalingrad. And on the Soviet side, there's this exchange where, uh, you know, the sniper has the love interest that the propagandist wants. He wants what the sniper has and he can't do anything about it. He realizes that Inequality is always there. If, we, if we're if we're equal equal in our poverty because we all have the same income, that doesn't mean we're equal in everything. Money's not everything. So, and then you look at the opposite. You look at, at at what you think of as being the most transparent, the freest kind of industries. They're all industries that the government either can't really touch because they're inept. Uh, you know, things on the web, uh, the dark web, or even the open web. Things like. Uh, Craigslist or eBay or, or Amazon, uh, things where you can literally uh, buy something and if it doesn't meet your exacting standards, get your money back pretty much no questions asked uh, on, on places like Amazon, uh, places that are set up to cater to you and will even at their own loss make something right. Uh, those are, are industries that at least have not been heavily regulated, heavily statified yet uh, and so it just seems – it seems obvious to at least point out and I hope it's obvious for people to see uh, because in, until people start to see that, um, it's it's a lot harder to make our case. Yeah, you know, uh, maybe a different way of looking at it too is if you consider uh, – and we can do anything. We can talk about a, a fighter aircraft. We can talk about a, a submarine or an aircraft carrier or we can talk about a road or we can talk about police services, or we can talk about air traffic control. Um, whatever the topic is, whatever that uh, pacifier or whatever that teddy bear that you want to hug, whatever it is, if you think about what does it actually take money-wise to provide this good or service, and then you think, okay, now what's the most efficient way to get that good or service? Would it be to have layers and layers and layers of bureaucrats shuffling paperwork back and forth um, and using tax money from people who have no incentive to streamline this process? Or would it be, um, you know, an individual who's going to risk his own capital to try to do this project as efficiently as possible and make a profit off of it? So if we think about something like, let's just say, the car, um, if it was 1900, the year 1900, and the government decided to, to mass produce cars, uh, what would be the result of that as compared to a guy like Henry Ford or General Motors or, uh, you know, the, the uh, Dodge Brothers or whatever? Um, how would they compare? And there actually is a good comparison in that sense. And you can look at the Soviet Union when uh, in the 1920s, they attempted to do exactly that. They attempted to nationalize everything and produce stuff for society based on, uh, you know, the ultimate government intervention into business. And at the same time, in the United States, we had companies like Ford Motor Company and General Motors and, and Dodge Chrysler and these other companies that were openly competing using their investors' uh, money and um, and voluntary labor, who people who went to work so that they could earn a living. And you have a, a, a drastic contrast here 
between what the Soviet Union was able to produce in the 1920s and 1930s and what the United States business was was able to produce during that same time frame. And, um, and if you take that out and just put it into other things in life, so then, you know, what would have been like if the United States government had decided in 1900 that they were going to mass produce cars? What kind of cars would they produce? How expensive would they be? Would any innovation have taken place in the industry? What would things have been like? Well, then you take that and apply that to police work or you, or air traffic control or, or, you know, building roads or whatever the thing is, whatever that teddy bear you're clinging to, apply that same logic to it and you find out that government wastes a tremendous amount of wealth in order to accomplish something that's not quite as good as the private sector can produce. Right. Well, you can even stay with that same industry. Uh, just think of the golden era of American car manufacturing. It was really before the state was as heavily involved in regulating what kind of cars people make uh, as they are now. Yeah. Uh, and, and I love uh, reading Eric Peters' blog occasionally. Uh, it's it's heavily focused on automotive stuff, and the guy actually has a day job reviewing cars for a major uh, uh, automotive magazine. But in his spare time, he blogs about uh, uh, libertarianism, especially with regards to roads and travel and cars. Uh, and he just points out how onerous all the regulations are now as far as curb weight and safety and all of these things that um, in the past were decided on a case-by-case basis by a company as to what they could get people to pay for, buy for. Things were more a la carte as far as what features you wanted and now they, they talk about standards and things are standardized and it's really affected things like uh, miles per gallon you know uh, even t- a lot of today's hybrids can't really compete with some of the diesel engines of old or even the diesel engines of, of European cars in, in miles per gallon and so uh, and, and you can also think of the, the companies that got bailed out most recently that were car manufacturers and those that didn't and uh, I think Ford for foregoed or for yeah, <laughs> they they passed up the bailout money, uh, and Chevy didn't. And if you look at a Ford and a Chevy, um, you, you can kind of see where the quality uh, difference is. And, and a lot of people would say Ford is a more ascendant brand now on the American scene. And maybe it's because they didn't take the strings that went along with the government money. Yeah, and then you take that to the next step of logic, and you say. If we didn't have an overbearing federal government for the last 250 years in the United States, if, you know, um, if rather than kicking out the British government only to form an American government made up of, a, you know, a hierarchy of, of special men that had special powers and top men. Yeah. yeah. R- rather than doing that, if American uh, society uh, had never formed a federal government, never and had been anarchical, um, all the way from the from the mid 1700s to the present. Think of all the wealth that the United States government has destroyed over the course of that time frame, and how much wealth would that be, and what would it be in? So, in other words, like. So we say, well, who would build the roads? And I know, Nima, you and I have talked about this before, and I've talked about it a lot on the podcast, and you've talked about it over at the Freedom Fiends. But um, the argument may not be who would build the roads. The argument might be who's building the best flying car. 
Right. We don't know. We don't, you know, it may have been, I've, I've used this as a, just a crazy example. It may have been dredgeables that, that would have won, uh, in, in the, um, in the, in the category of ideas back a hundred years ago. You know, maybe it wouldn't have been without government influence. Maybe it wouldn't have been a, a matter of how fast can you get there. Maybe it would have been how safely can you get there or how efficiently can you get there. In right. which case, dredgeables might have been or, or um, you know, some other form of uh, transportation that we don't even think of or that we haven't right. thought of might have been the prominent thing. And we might, no, we might not have roads if it weren't for the federal government. We might actually. <laughs> we might not need them. Yeah. And another thing, you think about how many Americans are killed, something like 30 to 40,000 Americans die every year on the highways. Well, that's not good. No. <laughs> that's not a success. It's not. It's not at all. It's, it's a tragedy. And if it were any other – if it were a non-state uh, organization or organizations that administered the roads, uh, heads would be rolling. They, yeah. they could not get away with continuing the status quo and having a death toll like 40,000 a year. Imagine uh, – let's go back to Disney. Imagine if 40,000 people a year <laughs> died at Disney parks. Imagine the, the kind of backlash you'd have in the media and with people, and people would just stop going. Oh yeah, they would, they, they would stop giving any of their money until the problem were f- not only fixed, but the PR problem was fixed, and the problem was proven to be fixed to the satisfaction of enough people to where people would go back and start spending their money willingly again. Yeah, but for some reason, because it's government, it's not even questioned. It's not right. that that doesn't even come up in the topic. They look right. at one side of the thing and they say, but without government, where would, where, how would we have roads? And they don't consider the other half of that, you know, that what is it that this government product is producing for you? Is that really what you want? How do you know what the market would, would have produced at this point in time if right. it weren't for this horrible influence that we've had? Right, right. Well, and opportunity costs. I mean, I, I think this is an important point to bring up right now. If you think about how much, and I'd love to see somebody do the math on this. Maybe they have. I just haven't come across it. Uh, if you think about how many resources were poured into these uh, West suicidal Western uh, things like World War One and World War Two, yeah. the, the millions in capital and bodies, uh, and not just if you if you could t- uh, tally up all of the the money. Uh, I mean, we'd still all be really wealthy right now, you know, and all the lives that were destroyed. Think about all the people that could have gone on to invent things like the cure for cancer or the flying car, uh, all the the human capital that could have been used uh, rather than uh, designing something like nuclear weapons, designing things that could feed the hungry yeah. uh, or designing things that could increase lifespans or decrease infant mortality. I mean all these problems um, that instead of the greatest minds going towards – uh, promoting life, liberty, and health, going towards destroying people to where you count the casualties in mega deaths. Literally, that's not just the name of a band. That's how they calculated the amount of deaths in the various scenarios when we were playing out our Cold War with Russia. When we were thinking about it uh, in the war rooms, people calculated tolls and mega deaths and said, well, we could lose uh, 25 million people here uh, if we kill 100 million Ruskies and then everything will be hunky-dory. How is that hunky-dory? How is that okay? How is it okay to even talk in those terms and still somehow have the hearts and minds 
of the average person on the street when you're talking about things like that that could get their family incinerated in the blink of an eye. Yeah, and something you touched on there too, you know, let's just imagine for let's think of uh, you, you of all people know how I feel about the great man theory and, and great men, uh, you know, uh, those ideas. On the other hand, there are people who pop up in history who have done some pretty amazing things like, you know, uh, Edison or Henry Ford or some of the different people like that, that either come up with a idea or an innovation and they really do some pretty amazing things with it. Um, and, and that's legitimate. That is not, that's not the great man theory where, you know, oh, without this great leader, we wouldn't be able to do this or that. That's not really it. In the, in the case of Edison, somebody would have invent, invented that stuff eventually, but Edison was the guy on the spot who was able to put two and two together and make those things happen. Well, well it's their, it's their innovation that we're revering in those cases. It, yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, if you could step back in time, and not only kill Edison, but kill a generation of Edisons. And not only kill, uh, you know, at, at let's say at 19 years old, just wipe them out. And not only kill um, Henry Ford, but kill a generation of Henry Fords when they were 19 years old, just wipe them out. And that is exactly what war does. War takes a whole generation of potential young men and just kills them. And we don't know what they could have invented. You don't know what ideas they would have had, what innovations. You don't know what kind of market pressures would have caused them to say, you know, we need a thing that does this or we need a thing that does that. And then put their efforts into it and their genius into it and make it happen. And the other thing is, uh, you know, as many of my listeners know, I used to work uh, in the aerospace industry and I worked with NASA and a bunch of private companies and industries and everything. And... Um, and I worked with some people who were amazingly intelligent. I, I can, this one lady that I worked with, she was English and she, uh, came over here to the U.S. And for most of her life and she worked in the aerospace industry. Uh, she was a, uh, an acoustic, uh, an air, a, a, um, hydro, hyper, hypersonic acoustic engineer. In other words, she understood how sound uh, acts when something is moving, you know, at multiple times the speed of sound. And she helped design uh, engine parts. So you think about an, an airplane that's flying, say, uh, one and a half times the speed of sound. And you think, well, that airplane is pl- flying pretty fast. But what you don't realize is the engine that's pushing that airplane inside that engine, as it's spinning those internal parts are going like 500 times the speed of sound. Right. And each of them has to be designed in such a way to be able to handle that kind of, uh, those kind of, of environments. And she's one of the people who uh, is was, at the time that I knew her, was on the cutting edge of understanding that type of mechanics and that type of science. And she was a brilliant woman. And yet, her... I could make the argument that all of the genius that was wrapped up in that individual was wasted on government projects because she worked for NASA. She was not out there inventing new things and, and, and you know, revolutionizing the market. She was, uh, there was all kinds of financial incentives for her to work for NASA rather than 
uh, in the private sector where she might be, you know, designing the flying car or designing who knows what. I, I don't even have the imagination to, to come up with something. Um, and I use her as an example because she's literally one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And I hate to say it, but all of her genius, or at least the vast majority of her genius, was wasted working on projects that were that would eventually go to be things like the B-2 bomber. And stuff designed to kill and destroy and blow things up and crush and, and waste money. And what a tragedy that is, multiplied out, multiplied out to the millions of lives that have been destroyed by war just in the last hundred years, and the millions of opportunities and the millions of potential geniuses that either spent their life wasted working on stupid things for the government, or they were killed and just never had the opportunity to do those things. Right, right. And I think it's it's important to maybe bring up some devil's advocate arguments here because a lot of times uh, – and I talk to a lot of non-anarchists uh, throughout my life. I mean uh, I don't really stew a lot, especially now. Uh, I don't really stew a whole lot in my own libertarian juices anymore. And a lot of times you'll get the argument or the objection that, well, what would you do about war? I mean uh, you need a government for war. How are you going to prosecute a war without a government? Uh, and I guess the answer is, well, why would you – there's no necessity for war, especially on the grand scale that we saw in the 20th century uh, without a government. The 20th century had wars like that because it was the advent of the modern total democratic state. Uh, and Napoleon pioneered it, saying that, well, now we have a total state so we can have total war. Uh, you know, It's not just one sovereign putting together a volunteer group of knights or, or who have lived their whole lives being loyal to one person. Instead, it's the whole populace now, and that sort of evolved into to now we have millions of people to throw as cannon fodder and millions of people to throw into industry to build things like this. And and why? And, and why do you need all that? Uh, and I think it, it can kind of wrap everything up in the sense that uh, that it's really the important distinction to me is consent versus non-consent. And so you have war because some people want something. They want to take over this resource or that resource. And instead of negotiating for it on a consensual basis, they get it in their heads that it, it will be better for us uh, and ours if we just take it by force, uh, if we rape and pillage. That's why those words go together when you're talking about invasions because at the end, that's really what the root of it is. Uh, and so to me, that's really the distinction and people – People I've talked to, when I explain sort of uh, anarchy, they say, well, you'll, you'll still have rules? Well, yeah. You'll still have social norms? Yeah. You'll still have companies and insurance? Yeah. And then they'll say like, well, how is that any different? The difference is consent. The difference is you'll hold agreements uh, and contracts as the necessity before an action is taken. Uh, and I think where you get war from is deciding to go for force above agreement. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that's a really good place to wrap this up. We've, we've kind of, I, I have really taxed you. I hate to use that word, but I've really taxed you, uh, to keep you on the line, um, this long. And I really appreciate you, uh, taking time out of your busy day and, and doing this with me. Uh, we're at about an hour and a half into the podcast now. And, uh, Nima, it's really been good to talk to you, not only because of the podcast, but just because I like talking to you. You're, you know, you're really a fun person to talk to. 
I appreciate that. Uh, this sentiment is definitely shared, Ben. Uh, and, um, I'm sad to see, uh, the Bad Quaker podcast wind down. It was very, very influential for me. Uh, I remember Michael, uh, brought your, brought, uh, brought you to my attention and said, Hey, check this guy out. I, I heard him. He, he just, I like the way he talks. I like the way he talks. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll give it a listen. And at first I was like, huh kind of slow and methodic and, and it wasn't really in my face and so I was like well Michael says so so I'll give it a chance and uh, I'm so glad I did because uh, yeah you, you might have a slower pace than somebody who's maybe in your face and, and punching you in the face with this kind of stuff and extreme and young and hip uh, not that you're not hip Ben <laughs> but uh, it was it was so enlightening to be able to have somebody who just breaks these things down and does it slowly and does it, uh, I don't know if gentle might be the word, but maybe it is, but, uh, just kind of, uh, I, I feel a sense of, of honesty from you and, and taking the time to get it right. And it's almost like having great customer service from your podcaster. It's somebody who's going to sit there and make sure you get it and explain it in a few different ways with a few different analogies that the common person can get and can understand. So I, I thank you for all your service, Ben. And, uh, I'm sad to see Bad Quaker wind down, but I'm happy to have had it exist in the world. And I think it's done a lot of good. I appreciate that, Nima. It's really good coming from you to hear that too. Uh, I do appreciate it. And folks, uh, thanks for listening today and remember to visit badquaker.com for, <laughs> for as long as the, uh, so, but even after the, after the site kind of goes away, we ha- we're setting up, um, forwarding links. Uh, the folks over at, um, the art of not being governed are helping out with this. So there's going to be a reason to, to, to get to badquaker.com even once the, the, uh, podcast disappears. Um, but anyway, uh, thanks for listening today and, um, and thanks for for the long-term listeners. You know, thanks for being there right along. Folks, thanks a lot. Goodbye.